0: As Eric said, we're going to be in um, what I, what I think is uh, probably one of the most um, misunderstood and misapplied passages in the entire Bible. So. Um you know, we're, we're going through no small feat jumping into the book of Revelation itself, but, but also Revelation 13. And, uh, you know, specifically, you know, the, the mark of the beast, right, this, this mysterious and eerie number 666, which we see at the end of the chapter, um, has been both admired by metal bands and feared by the superstitious for, for a long time. In fact, the city of Irvine, California, this, I, thought, I just thought this was hilarious, um, passed regulations prohibiting new single-family home developments from including the number 666 in their address. The mythical and eerie nature of this number has gained the attention of many people over the, the 2,000 years that we've had the scriptures. And, but my hope is that this would not be some sort of mythical or superstitious number for you by the, by the time we're done. You see, because before looking at Revelation 13, it's good to remember where we're at in the book. And and I, I want to encourage you, if you're if you're new, maybe this is your first time coming to this church, um, I, I want to encourage you two things. One, um, every Christian would admit that what we're about to read in Revelation 13 just sounds really weird. It's weird. Um, w- we don't write like this today. Um, this was written 2,000 years ago um, by the, the Apostle John who received a heavenly vision. And in that heavenly vision, what he's trying to do is he's trying to give us... Um, a, basically what I would like to say as heavenly commentary or a heavenly description or heavenly perspective on earthly realities. Oftentimes when we read the book of Revelation, we can be tempted to kind of do one of three things, um, or one of two things. We could see everything in the book of Revelation as something that's going to happen in the future, which isn't actually what John is saying, because if everything was happening in the future, then there would be no practical implications for the seven churches that John himself is writing to in the letter of Revelation. So we know that what John is writing in the book of Revelation actually bears significance for his original audience, which his original audience would have received this letter in like the year, like like seventy eight, like before 70 AD, which was a long time ago. So the book of Revelation bears significance for them, and it bears significance for us now. But at the same time, the book of Revelation isn't just describing a bunch of things that also happened in the past. You see, the book of Revelation is giving you heavenly commentary on every single thing that has happened since Christ rose from the grave until he returns. And so what we know when we look at the book of Revelation, what we're going to see today is a heavenly description of how the the, the great enemy of God, uh, who's identified in chapter 12 as the great dragon or Satan, has been in activity, waging war against God's people since Jesus ascended into heaven. You guys tracking with me? Okay. So, chapter 12 reveals this cosmic war that's been going on since Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, right? This bloodthirsty dragon waging war against God and his people, and this is a war that you and I experience every single day, whether we know it or not, right? And so maybe you're in here, and and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and, and now you got this goofy-looking 30-year-old telling you that you, you've been at war and you don't know it. And here's what I want to tell you. Apart from Christ, that is a war that you and I would be destined to lose. And that's what Revelation 13 is, 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 is showing us this morning. You see, if we want to understand this passage, we must do two things. First, our reading of Revelation 13 needs to depend on the Old Testament, If you ever wondered why we we get Revelation so wrong, it's because we don't understand and and see the Old Testament scriptures, which, by the way, on average, I just want to let you know, every one and a half verses, on average, in the book of Revelation is giving some sort of an allusion to the Old Testament, on average. It's fascinating. The second thing, so we need to go to the Old Testament, especially, especially for Revelation 13, we're going to be in Daniel 7 a lot. So if you if you want to like put a little bookmark in your Bible to like read that later, we're not gonna read the whole thing in full. But Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 talk to each other. And, And Daniel 7 actually gives us perspective on Revelation 13 and vice versa. But the second thing that we should be focused on is not who the beast is, it's what the beast is doing. You see, most of us when we read the book of Revelation, we're asking the question: who is the beast? I don't want to ask that question this morning. Now we'll we'll get there. But rather, what we need to do is focus our attention on what the beast is doing, because as we do, the identity of the beast will actually become very clear to us. And as we go through the chapter, you might actually find that the beast is closer than you think. To quote Revelation 13 9 He who has ears to hear, let him listen. Let's read. Starting in, uh, I'm going I'm to start in chapter 2, verse 18, and then we'll jump into 13. So the dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Remember, this is a vision. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bears and its mouth was like a lion's mouth the dragon gave the beast his power you see this transfer of authority and power to the beast his throne and great authority one of its heads appeared to have a fatally appeared to be fatally wounded but its fatal wound was healed the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast they worshiped well well there we go they worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, which if you're reading the book of Revelation, that that language is actually describing the entire time between Jesus' ascension and return. Right? Okay. Where did I go? Oh, no. There we go. It began to speak blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven, and it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who was slaughtered. Who is the the lamb who was slaughtered? Christ. So this is saying anybody who has not been marked or set apart by Christ will worship this beast. Revelation 12 ends with an enraged dragon going to wage war on the offspring of the woman. And at the end of chapter 12, it describes the offspring of this woman as the church. Don't take my word for it. The text says the offspring of the woman are those who keep the commandments of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. It's talking about the church. So we know that, that this beast has been waging war, and this dragon has been waging war against the church as long as the church has existed. Which means that this passage, what I just read, is something that has been happening for 2,000 years because the the church has existed for 2,000 years. Now here's the thing. We often think about war as violence. But what you'll see here is the war that the dragon wages against the church comes more through deception and coercion. It certainly doesn't stop there. It gets to violence. But it would be far too obvious. Think about this for a minute. It would be far too obvious for the dragon to wage war by going around murdering Christians. Instead, the dragon enlists help. Standing at the edge of the sea, which symbolizes this realm of evil and darkness, the dragon calls forth and commissions a beast to wreak havoc on the church. The beast is set up in the text as a counterfeit Christ. The dragon calls the beast and gives him all authority, a forgery of the authority the father gives the son after his resurrection from the dead. Remember, the Great Commission says... Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. So, in a forgery of the same kind of delegation of authority that the Father gives to the Son, the dragon delegates all of his authority to the beast. Speaking of resurrection, the beast is described as having a mortal wound and being healed. It's it's not easy to kill, it's important. It's not that the beast literally had a, a, a mortal wound. It's the fact that the beast seems to continue to keep coming back no matter how much the beast gets knocked down throughout history. It's hard to kill. This is a forgery of the resurrected Christ and the beast bears the image of the dragon, a forgery of Christ who is the image of the invisible God. Now why is it important for John to set up the beast as a counterfeit Christ? Because we know that a forgery is worth nothing. If I was to take a, a, a fake $100 bill to somebody who is trained to see it, they would look at me and laugh and say, this isn't worth nothing, this isn't worth anything. In the same way, John is setting up the beast as a counterfeit Christ to show that he is promoting and provoking the worship of the world, but also that he's actually worth nothing. In the end, his kingdom will come to ruin and Christ himself will triumph over the beast. But the whole chapter itself forms this unholy trinity, right? You have the dragon and then you have two beasts, One that comes out of the sea and one that comes out of the earth. And this unholy trinity, listen to me, this is very important. Siphons worship from the world that was made for God alone. The beast's mission is to gather worshipers for the dragon. Now you might not have ever thought of yourself as a worshiper of the dragon, as a worshiper of Satan. But listen to how Paul describes the the redeeming work of Christ in Colossians 1. He says that Christians who are a part of the church have been rescued from the domain or the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. Elsewhere in Ephesians 2, Paul says that once you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But he doesn't just say that that apart from Christ, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. No, no, no. He gets very offensive. He says that once you are following the the, the ruler of the power of the air, and then he gives you a clause to say what that is. He says, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. So Paul, in Ephesians 2, in the beginning of Ephesians 2, says that apart from Christ, you're dead and you're following Satan. A spirit that is now, now, not later, now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, the way that Revelation 13, the heavenly commentary that it gives us is there's, again, two kinds of people in the world. Those who worship the beast and those who worship the king. When you think of worship, don't think about singing or religious devotion or, you know, especially when you think of somebody worshiping the dragon, you don't, don't think of somebody who's going into some kind of Satanist occult temple like making blood sacrifices to Satan. That's typically kind of what we think of when we think of worship. That's not how Revelation 13 is describing worship. It's, it's describing worship more as a commitment, loyalty, or allegiance. So don't think of somebody going to a temple. Think about a sports fan who can't miss a game. Somebody who's so committed, so, gives so much of their allegiance to a sports team that they could not miss a game. That's the kind of worship, the kind of flavor of commitment that the beast is, is, is trying to bring in for the dragon. Or think about the worker so committed to her boss's approval and her professional development that she will sacrifice her family at the altar of professional achievement. Worship is not a musical genre. It's the commitment that shapes our life. And the reality is everyone worships. And the beast seeks to gather the allegiance of men toward the dragon. And he does this by creating a forgery of God's own call for his people to be totally committed to him alone. You'll see this over and over again. That The beast is only a cheap imitation of that which Christ fully is. Listen to the rest of Revelation 13. And, and specifically how it builds into that famous mark of the beast at the end of the, at the, end of the passage. We're gonna start in verse 11. We'll we'll come back to verses nine and 10 here in a second, but verse 11, then I saw another beast. So this is talking about the second beast that comes out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. You see that? How is Jesus described earlier in the book of Revelation? As a lamb. So the second beast that comes out looks like a lamb, but it sounds like a dragon. It's deception, specifically religious deception. Have you ever been a part of a church that gave a front of righteousness, but they were doing backdoor deals of evil? Two horns like a lamb, it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven in front of people. That's a call back to the, the moment in the Old Testament where Elijah calls down heaven to shame the prophets of Baal. telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship it, the image, to be killed. You see that? Anybody who's not worshiping the image of the beast is is slaughtered. And it makes everyone great and small, rich and poor, slave and free. So so every sort of person who's involved in any sort of economic, like any economic status, there's all person without reservation, is forced to receive a mark on their hand, the right hand, or their forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. So, this beast of deception forces all people to take a mark on the right hand and the forehead. Now, here's what, and then it tells you later that the mark is the number 666, which it says is the number of a man. And we'll get to that in a minute. But what is John doing here? You see, the beast makes everyone take the mark on their forehead and their hand. There's only one place in the Bible where it talks about a mark on the forehead and the hand. Do you know where it is? It's Deuteronomy 6. Listen to Deuteronomy 6 with me real quick. This is, God's people are coming into the promised land. They've just been in the wilderness for 40 years. There's a new generation, right? This is not the generation who would have received the law at Sinai. This would be their children. So Moses like re-gives the law to them, okay? That's what's happening. He re-gives the law to them right before they're about to take the promised land. And before he re-gives the law to them, he calls the the, the Israelite people to give their whole lives over to the Lord. And this is what he says. Listen, Israel. This is Deuteronomy 6, four through eight. You can mark it down and look at it later if you'd like. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your strength. And that should sound familiar to you if you've read the Bible because Jesus, when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, said what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is, he's quoting part of this passage. So, So he says, love the Lord your God with everything you have, with all that you are. And here's what it looks like in your life. These are the words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Now, was Moses telling the people of Israel to like tattoo their hands and their foreheads with Bible verses? No. It was a, it was a symbol of, of devotion, holy to God. The churches that John was writing to in Revelation would have heard the language of the mark being on the foreheads and the hands and immediately thought of Deuteronomy 6. It's not a sign of people putting a number on their heads. It's, it's the kind of devotion that the beast is after, which is the same kind of devotion that God calls his people to. Deuteronomy 6 is not a command for them to write verses on their bodies. It was a command for the words of the law to be so deeply ingrained in who they are that love to God consumed their thoughts and their actions, consumed their mind and their actions, the ways they lived, their head and their hands. The beast wants the same kind of commitment to the dragon. The dragon wants loyalty that only God deserves. It's the same worship that that Satan tried to get from Jesus, isn't it? When he was tempted in the wilderness. What did he say? If you will worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. That's what Satan said to Jesus. Who literally is the king of all the earth. Revelation is giving us a picture of what Satan has been doing since Christ rose from the grave. Just think about the careless hate toward Christians that you have seen in just your lifetime, not just the two, not even just the 2,000 years before any of us were born, but in just your lifetime, how much careless hate that you've seen in media, in news articles, in schools, toward Christians. And, and this isn't something that's just happening on the other side of the pond or in continents that we often think of, like, like, like Africa or Asia, that have, have little to no access to the gospel, it happens here. Whether people are conscious of it or not, the beast leads them to worship the dragon. This is how, with their actions, they show that they actually hate the lamb and his people. They've given their full allegiance to the dragon. All people without exception who have turned against God are the very people who have succumbed to the beast in worship. If you're not in Christ, that should make you feel very uncomfortable. Because what that means, I just said, if you don't worship Christ, you're worshiping the dragon, whether you know it or not. Because in your actions and in your way of life, you set yourself against God. The good news of the gospel is that God rescues his enemies. He redeems his enemies. He doesn't just leave you to wallow in madness. He saves and he redeems. He calls those out of darkness into light. Enemies of God like I once was. He gives them new life in his name. When someone curses you because of your love for Christ, they do so in allegiance to the beast. So how does the beast get so much allegiance? Well, he conquers through power, deceit, and coercion. We've already seen it in the text. The beast arrogantly exalts himself to the place of God. It's the same kind of exaltation that you see in Genesis 11, right? As, as humanity tries to do what? Build a tower to the heavens. right? We've been trying to be God since Adam took the fruit from his wife. And it's the same kind of arrogant exaltation that the beast tries to promote among his followers, Right, The beast sees himself as more superior, which is why he can say degrading and horrific blasphemies against God and his people. The beast in his efforts to attack the church as an agent of the dragon creates even economic hardship for his people. I have a friend who after I, I uh, taught a class in, a, in a, our church, um, our previous church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, he's really, really high up in a really, really big organization and company um, and has a lot of subordinates Every year for his annual performance review, he's he's measured, one of the measuring sticks of how he can do his job effectively is whether or not he affirms the the, the sexual preferences and identity of the people on his team. Think about that with me for a moment. My friend, if he doesn't affirm the sexual identity of the people on his team, risks losing his job. That has nothing to do with his actual performance in whatever it is he's doing, right? That's like saying a construction worker is graded on their performance to swing a hammer based on how they see the sexual preferences of the people on their team. It's crazy. It's madness. Again, if you don't take the mark, economic consequences, fire from your job. Look, the... the, Listen to the poem that John says in the middle of this passage. He says, if anyone is to be taken captive into captivity, go. he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. It's a little poem to show the consequences for Christians who refuse to take the mark and lay down and give their allegiance to the beast. It would be like John saying, if you get arrested, you get arrested. If you get slandered, you get slandered. If you're called a bigot, you'll be called a bigot. If you're fired, you're fired. And if you're killed, you're killed. Why is that important for us today? Because it shows us, again, before we get to the identity of the beast, we have to see what the beast is doing and how the beast works. Because then once I get to the identity, the pieces will come together for you. Look, the, the beast will make life hard for God's people by doing three things. Think about how you've experienced these things in your own life. Provoking hardship when God's people live in the gospel. Creating hardship which pressures God's people to compromise the gospel. Or honoring and exalting those who turn away from the gospel? Who are culture's heroes who are lauded in our world right now? Those who have deconstructed their faith and totally walked away from Christ, and those who, with no apology, live lives that are totally opposite of what God calls his people to. All of this is happening in the shadow of the beast. Has the world ever made it difficult for you to be a follower of Jesus? Doesn't our culture and every culture before us, not just this one, but every culture before us from Rome to now, celebrate and exalt those who defy God and his ways? Every single one of them does. You don't have to get very far in a history book to see that. The beast works through subtle coercion, deception, counterfeit promises, economic hardship, and when those fail, brute force. The beast will go after your friendships, your relationships, your family, your faith, your wallet, and when none of this works, he will come for your life. The beast will promote what is false by proclaiming new standards of truth. This is the the, the beast that has two horns like a lamb but sounds like a dragon. One beast rises from the sea, this spiritual realm of darkness, the other from the earth. Why is that important? Because it shows how the dragon's instruments are not limited to merely spiritual influence. He uses earthly means to steal worship that rightly belongs to God alone. The the, the earthly beast is characterized by deception, religious deception. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. He's a false prophet that leads the world to worship the beast through deception. The kind of deception that leads God's people to worship other gods, saying that Christ isn't real. It's the kind of deception that tells you that God, that God is a God of love and he doesn't demand justice. It's the kind of deception that tells you that all religions lead to God, which actually distorts the gospel. It's the kind of false prophet that redefines truth by saying, like, who could really know what's true? Like, come on. It's a little arrogant for you to say that you actually know truth like you know truth is whatever works for you whatever makes you feel good about yourself and whatever makes you happy have you heard that before yeah this is the kind of deception that the beast wields so that he might steal the worship that rightly belongs to god siphoning it out of the world and creating for himself his own people you know the common question again when when we come to this text is who's the beast and there's no shortage of speculation. I mean, in my research, I even saw somebody arguing for Ronald Reagan being the beast. And I haven't tried to answer the question because I've wanted to give you a very, very clear picture of how the beast works. Because, again, the way that we often read this passage is the beast is, is, is a figure in the future. Revelation doesn't paint it that way. Revelation paints the beast as a plague to the church The church has existed for 2,000 years, which means the beast has been a plague for 2,000 years. And John's audience knew exactly who he was talking about. And surprise, surprise, help is found in the Old Testament. So there are two passages in in Revelation 13 that give us a clue to, or or um, as a friend of mine who was preaching on this passage says, a wink toward who the beast is. The first is in the beginning when it says that John says, I I saw a beast coming out of the sea. This is verse one in, in, in Revelation 13. Ten horns and seven heads, that's important. Where else have you heard that? The dragon is described with the very, very same features. One, and two, in Daniel 7, you'll see another beast described with those same features. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. There's a picture, if you could. Um, could you throw a picture? I, uh, in, my, in my sermon research, I, I found this gem online. Um, now, I have no idea where they got a dinosaur in this description. Um, but this is, listen, this, this is the kind of thing that we're tempted to do because we don't read literature like this, Right? Nobody is writing to somebody else describing a creature like this that that means something else. But with these kinds of images of these kinds of animals, it would have struck home for John's audience because John knew his people. So he could give them symbols that were significant to them. I'm not going to read all of Daniel 7, but you can write down Daniel 7 verses 3 through 8. And what you're going to see is, again, this is the king of Babylon. This is the book of the Bible where, like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendigo, or if you grew up on VeggieTales, Shack, and Benny, are, 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 you know, thrown in the fiery furnace because they won't bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar puts up. And imagine that. You have a wicked king and a ruler lifting up an, an idol of himself, craving worship. Sounds kind of beastly, doesn't it, based on what we've described. And they say, no, I will not compromise. We will not lay down. They get thrown in the fiery furnace, and they're protected by God. By God. So later in that book, in chapter 7, Daniel has this, the, the, the king of Babylon has this, this vision, and he describes the vision for Daniel. And surprise, surprise, in his vision, he sees four beasts. Not one, we see one in Revelation 13, but he sees four. One's like a lion, another is like a bear, and another is like a leopard. And how does John describe the beast in Revelation 13? It's got the features of a leopard, a lion, and a bear. And then there's this fourth beast in Daniel. John describes it as frightening and dreadful. It's like a, a, a mega beast, right? Like, think Godzilla on steroids. That's how this beast is kind of being described. Incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. How many, beasts does the, how many horns does the, the beast in Revelation 13 have? Ten horns. Now, if you keep reading in Revelation 7, down to verse 17, an angel actually gives the identity of the four beasts, describes the four beasts as four kings that reign on the earth, four political rulers. Okay, can we go there? Can I use the word polit- political in church and not get shot? Is that okay? Okay. Four political rulers. And scholars across denominations are in full agreement of the four political rulers or kingdoms these beasts represent. Babylon, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, which many of us would be familiar because of names like Alexander the Great. That's the empire it's talking about. And Rome, the Roman Empire, which was the world power and ruling empire at the time of Jesus and at the time of John's writing. So John identifies this, John describes this beast by collapsing the images of these four kingdoms and their rulers into one image of a beast. Or another way to say it is an animal. This is where it gets really interesting. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, like, you know, most kings do, puts himself in the position of God and, and attributes all of his success, all of his, all of his, like, wondrous works, all of his might, all of his power, all of his glory to his own gain. Sounds pretty arrogant, right? Well, Instead of attributing God for the, 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 all of these things that he's received, he, he, he takes ownership of it himself. It's the same kind of thing we all do, isn't it? Don't we take our own ownership and are, are prone to toot our own horn because of the good things in our life, rather than giving thanks to God, who is the giver of all good gifts, as Eric read about earlier? He showed the kind of arrogance wicked men display when they rise to power, prestige, and wealth. God comes to him in a dream and executes judgment on him. This is in Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar has the kingdom stripped from his hands. God tells him that the Persians, the Medes, are going to come in and they're going to take out Babylon. He's not going to, they're, not going to, they're not going to stay the world power and authority anymore. God's going to take him out. Nebuchadnezzar's going to be arrogant. God's going to tell him to sit down. But that's not where it stops. He's driven into the wilderness as a sign of judgment. His hair grows like gnarly long and his nails grow gnarly long. He starts to feed on the earth. What's he acting like? An animal. Why is that important? Because in Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance, exalting himself to the place of God, he ceased to be like a man. And by his own appetites, he became like an animal. So God made him into one. When wicked men rise to the top, In their arrogance and sinful appetites, they cease to be men. Instead, they look more like animals or beasts. John borrows from this imagery referring to these wicked kings, institutions, and empires as beastly in Revelation 13. It's a fitting picture, actually, if you think about it. Because the first time that sin is personified in the Bible, how is it described? Cain is tempted to be jealous of his brother Abel. And what does God say to him? Sin is crouching at your door like a lion. A beast, its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. so when John's readers would have heard the description of the beast, they would have thought of wicked kings, especially Caesar. but Caesar isn't the only beast, is he, according to Daniel seven, the rulers of Babylon, Persia, and Greece were also beasts so. The only beast can't be Caesar. And so when we wrap our heads around the imagery, the idea begins to make a lot of sense. The beasts of Revelation are not some prophecy of a wicked human ruler in the distant future. These beasts are the picture of every wicked human ruler and authority who gains so much in pursuit of their own glory that they become like glory hungry animals. That's quite the indictment from the scriptures. And in the shadow of all these wicked rulers is the dragon, like a great puppet master, he uses these beastly kings to draw people away from Christ. When you begin to see this, the pieces really start to fit together. Isn't human history between Jesus' ascension and his return littered with wicked men who in arrogance exalted themselves to the place of God? Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, who actually is responsible for more blood than Hitler and Stalin combined. Attila the Hun, Ivan the Terrible, Napoleon are all examples of this. Each of these men cast a shadow of the beast and lead the world to worship the dragon. They're not just garnering political allegiance for themselves. The scriptures are peeling back the layer of the physical to say, no, 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 they're leading people away from Christ to worship the dragon. And if you aren't convinced of this, look at the mark. Listen to how John describes the mark of the beast. He says, This calls for wisdom. This is verse 18. It's at the end of chapter 13. He says, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. In many ancient languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, they didn't have numbers. Right? We have different symbols for our alphabet and different symbols for our numbers. They didn't have different symbols. So what they would do so they could do math is they assign numerical values to their letters. You deal with this conundrum every single time you try to figure out what Super Bowl it is. Right? Because none of us actually understand how Roman numerals work. We just kind of pretend we do. Right? But they're, they're Latin letters with assigned numerical values that make a number when you put them together. If you were to write the name Nero Caesar in Hebrew and add up the numerical values of the letters, it would equal 666. So John and his readers would have thought, of, again, this is, if you didn't catch it from Daniel 7, John's going to wink at you again at the end. If you didn't catch it from Daniel 7, the imagery, which points to Rome, led by Caesar, I'll, I'll show you again here. Does that mean that Nero is the only beast? No. John is giving his readers of an image of the kind of person that casts the beast shadow in the world. When you see a man, in institution, in authority like Nero, you know the beast is working. And this isn't the only thing that, that John uses for this. Later in the book of Revelation, he's going to do the same kind of thing to talk about wicked societies. And he's going to do it by pointing back, back to wicked Babylon. To say that Babylon didn't fall back then. Many Babylons have arisen since then as wicked human society rises to the top and as beasts lead worship to the dragon. What was Nero like? Listen to this. During Nero's reign, many Christians were arrested, including Peter and Paul. Some were crucified. Others were sewn into the skins of wild animals, and dogs were set loose on them. This guy was nasty. Women were tied to bulls and dragged to death. And at night, some Christians were attached to stakes and burned in Nero's garden while they had parties around the screaming people. But the work of the beast didn't start in Nero's day either. You see, the beast also led Israel's own religious institution to cozy up with the beast so they could maintain their own power and influence. You know the story. It's in John 19. When the Jewish Sanhedrin arrested Jesus, they had to get Roman permission to kill him. And so what do they do? They bring Jesus to Pilate. And the charge is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so Pilate asks, should I crucify your king? You know what the Sanhedrin says? Who are supposed to be living the embodiment of Deuteronomy 6, loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, giving their allegiance to nobody else. They say, we have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. Caesar. They took the mark. Christ was crucified in the shadow of the beast. and The Jewish leaders worshiped the beast, showing a loyalty and allegiance to Caesar as they crucified the king of kings. But the beast didn't die with Rome, did he? No, 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 he keeps coming back, right? His head had a fatal wound, but he keeps coming back. The Soviet Union, which tortured and killed Christians who refused to give allegiance to the state, take the mark or we will take your families. But it doesn't stop with the fall of Soviet Union. Modern-day Russia has a strict anti-missionary and anti-evangelism laws. In 2019, an evangelical worship service was interrupted as Russian authorities arrested a 71-year-old pastor for illegal missionary activity. And earlier that year, two Christians were arrested by the government for talking about their faith at a bus stop. Take the mark. Give allegiance to us by refusing to talk about your faith. Or what about the Kim dynasty in North Korea, which has created a personality cult around their leadership. Its leaders actually see themselves as semi-divine. Sounds like the beast, doesn't it? While demanding high levels of loyalty and allegiance from their people with threats of punishment for any dissenter, if it walks like a beast or talks like a beast, it's a beast. Or what about China's Communist Party government, led by Xi Jinping, which has censored Christians relentlessly If they do not take the mark of allegiance to the state, they will be shut down. In fact, in China, if you want to have a website as a church, you have to install cameras in your service so the government can actually see what you're doing. The censorship is so deep that the government has actually rewritten parts of the Gospel of John. And again, we're Americans. So we love to look at the people out there as the bad guy, don't we? I think if John were writing to 21st century United States citizens about the beast, he might describe the beast this way. I saw a beast rising from the waters of the Potomac. It had eyes like stars and stripes on its body. In its hand were three branches, and it had the head of a donkey, the feet of an elephant, and the wings of an eagle. And with its mouth it spoke the words, we the people. Images and symbols when used with the right people are powerful, aren't they? We cannot be guilty of falling into the lie of thinking that somehow the rulers of this country are immune to the kind of beastly acts that have been carried out by human authorities against God's people since Jesus walked out of the grave. This country and its rulers, red or blue, cast the shadow of the beast. And when you start to understand how the beast works, you begin to see him everywhere, It's like that, like you know like when you buy a new car and you think it's like real nice and all of a sudden you're driving down 74 and you see it everywhere. Once you're familiar with the form of the vehicle, you start seeing it all over the place. In the same way, when we begin to understand the shape of the beast's shadow, we see it cast everywhere. The beast works through wicked institutions, religious and non-religious. And if you think the beast is just far off over here, just let me read a couple of things to you. Throughout the tyrannical reign of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and into the 16th and 17th century, the beast put on religious robes and many Christians died because they only wanted to submit to the kinds of religious practices that were laid out in the Bible, not extra stuff that the Catholic Church was prescribing. In fact, just because they wanted the Bible in their own language, saints like Wycliffe were put to death by the Catholic Church for trying to translate the language of the Bible into the language of the common people so they could actually read the text for themselves. Since Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in the United States, roughly 63,459,781 children have been killed. Many times, these deaths have been celebrated by our country's leaders in the name of personal autonomy and sexual freedom. And just to put that into perspective for you, the estimated death toll of the carnage caused by World War II, including the Holocaust and all civilian deaths, was 70 million people. The transatlantic slave trade was accomplished through men who, wielding Bibles, decided that it would be a good idea to travel across the world and kidnap people out of their families, put them on boats, and ship them across the country to sell and enslave them, ignoring passages in Scripture like Exodus 21, which actually says it is a capital offense to abduct someone and sell them into slavery. What about the Jim Crow laws laws in the South? which promoted promoted racism and the mistreatment of black Americans throughout the 20th century, even putting black Christians to death in front of courthouses. Just another example of the beast using religion to garner worship for himself. Here's something a little closer to home. In the state of Illinois right now, any mental health professional risks having their license to practice revoked if they engage in what is known as conversion therapy. In other words, a mental health provider puts their livelihood, professional career, and reputation at risk if they desire to help a 12-year-old trans girl see that they're actually not a man. Or a Christian counselor would risk losing her license for saying that a child should not act upon their attraction to the same sex. The standard of what is good is being placed in the hands of a young child who's actually just trying to figure out who they are. A kind of deception only possible in the shadow of the beast and enforced by our government. Satan doesn't need to kill you if he can get you to deconstruct your faith. He doesn't need to send government officials into this church to raid it and censor it if he can get us to compromise on what the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality. Because the, the, the devil doesn't want us to die. He wants worshipers. It's only when he can't get our worship that the violence starts. I'm not trying to show you the beast. It, like, I'm not trying to show you uh, that, that the beast is, is not some figure in the future D- just to like, make you upset or scared or fearful right now. That's not my point. My point is to show you that the beast is at work today and the beast has been at work, drawing worship for, his, drawing worship for the dragon since Jesus ascended into the heavens. And if we fall into the lie that the beast, we're waiting for the beast to appear, we will miss clear evidence in front of us that he's already here and we won't heed Revelation's call to stand firm. And if you hear all of the ways that the beast has been working and wield it as ammunition for your your Christian outrage, you're not responding how John wants you to respond. John's words say this calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Look, when all hope seemed lost, we have a victorious song to sing. Don't be discouraged. The song of redemption is a song of victory, not a song of defeat. The lamb has been slain, and Jesus is worthy, and he will defeat the beast. We who overcome, overcome by what? The blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We who do not love our own lives but give them up for the sake of the lamb. We do this because we worship the lamb who freed us from worshiping the beast. And you have the spirit which leads you to discern so that you do not fall in the deception of the beast. In fact, in Revelation 13, it says if you're in Christ, you can't fall into the deception. God's got you. He protects you. And he will hold you. Even when all hope seems lost. Even when you're looking out in the world and everything seems to be going crazy. And no hope seems to be on the horizon. We can actually proclaim freedom from the beast to those who are enslaved because we know Christ has freed us from the power of the dragon. And our proclamation, our telling of the good news of what God has done in Christ will lead others to begin worshiping Christ and no longer give themselves over to the beast. There's a moment in the movie Shawshank Redemption where uh, the wrongly accused Andy Uphrain is in the warden's office. I don't know if you've seen the movie. But a- Andy Dufresne was wrongly accused for murder, and he was sentenced to life, uh, two life sentences in prison. And after a few years, he garners the favor of the warden, and he has this moment where he's left alone in the warden's office. He looks over in the corner, and there's a, a, a basket of old records that were donated to the prison. And this is, uh, it, it, the movie does a really, really great job of showing the horrors of mid-20th century prisons in, in America. But he goes over, and he grabs a record, and he puts it on a record player, he starts to play it. And then he runs over and he locks the door while the guard that's looking at him or supposed to watch him is in the bathroom. It's it's a pretty funny scene. Then he locks the main door to the office. He takes the intercom that's in the warden's office to blast throughout the whole prison, and and he hits the button. And what the prison begins to hear is Mozart. He kicks his feet up on the warden's desk in victory and blasts the opera music loud over the speakers of the prison. And the prison halts, Everybody stops. In a state of awe, they just sit and silently listen. And Red, who's Andy's friend doing a life sentence with him, then says something really interesting. But before I read it, you have to understand the way that the movie's set up to this point, Andy and Red get to a point where they realize that even if they were to be released from prison on parole from their life sentences, their release would be worse than prison. All hope of getting out for both of them seemed totally lost. And as the music plays, Red says this. To this day, I have no idea what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't wanna know. Some things are, are left best unsaid. I would like to think that they were singing about something so beautiful it cannot be expressed in words. It makes your heart ache because of it. I can tell you those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage, and made these walls dissolve away. For the briefest moment, every last man in Shawshank felt free. Andy's act of defiance against evil gave hope, joy, and a sense of freedom to men who had lost hope. And in the midst of a dark world, our triumphant and courageous proclamation of the gospel can make the hopelessness of sin dull, dissolve away to a world of hopeless people. In the face of such reckless hate, we have good news a rider in white who defeats the beast sinners like us who once were enemies of god worshiping the dragon now brought into the family of god and made sons and daughters of the most high whom jesus says there is a place prepared for you a brief moment of suffering today as we proclaim this gospel is worth it because we look forward to an eternity of lasting freedom from sin and death but christ the better king will come guys He will stand against the beast and the dragon who promotes reckless hate against God and his people. He will cast them into the lake of fire. So hang on to Christ, for he promises you. He promises you that he will carry you through such hard and difficult times. In the short term, scripture promises a life that's hard. He promises a cross of suffering that you will bear, but in the long term, you will receive a crown of life. So hang on to Jesus, don't give up. Proclaim Christ as boldly and as loud as you can because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And so we can say with total confidence, with total allegiance to the one who actually has all authority, not some counterfeit fake with no power, the words that Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who can accuse you of wrong? It's God who justifies. Who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. And he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And so who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things, you are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor beast, nor dragon, nor anything else created will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you that you have given us so much confidence in the scriptures. God, uh, uh. Don't let us be distracted by peripheral arguments around the book of Revelation to miss the call to faithful living in a hostile world. God, that we would see Christ as worthy, that we'd see him as worthy of our worship and we would give our lives in total allegiance and devotion to him and take a courageous stand for the gospel. God, that we would be reminded that you have set us free, that the walls of our prison have been dissolved and we can walk with freedom because Christ has redeemed us from all lawlessness. God, I thank you for the opportunity to Worship with Redeemer this morning. I pray that you would encourage them in their faith, that you would give them wind in their sails as they continue to reach this area with the good news that Christ reigns. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.